Hey, everybody. FYICBD.com. My friends Caleb and John are the brain trusts behind FYICBD. CBD helps with a slew of health conditions, including back pain, osteoarthritis, even cancer. Use promo code BOARDROOM20 at checkout for 20% off. If you're in pain, FYICBD.com. Go there now. Monkey Surf Resort, the newly built Monkey's Resort, is a luxury Tello Island surf resort in Sumatra, Indonesia, providing better access to premier Tello Island waves. Monkey'sResort.com. The Boardroom International Surfboard Show, presented by U.S. Blanks, May 2nd and 3rd of 2020 in Del Mar, California. Boardroomshow.com. And the California Gold Surf Auction, it serves the global audience of premium surfboard and surf memorabilia collectors. The next auction, May 2nd, lots begin closing in succession May 2nd, noon Pacific Standard Time. CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the word entrepreneur has been used in English to refer to a kind of businessman since at least the middle of the 18th century when it appeared in translation of the King of Prussia's instructions for his generals. And I quote, If the countryside happens not to abound in forage, you must agree with some entrepreneur for the quantity required. I'm assuming that was what the King of Prussia sounds like. In other words, if you can't find any food, go find somebody that can sell you some food. By the early 20th century, entrepreneur appears to have taken on the connotation of a go-getter, somebody who makes things happen. Bert Berger is an entrepreneur, a futurist, a visionary. Bert is someone who's not afraid to ruffle a few feathers if it means moving forward in a positive direction. The Boardroom Podcast with Bert Berger. Let us begin. Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. We're here at uh, Surf Expo in Orlando, Florida. Good morning, Bert. Yeah, good morning, Scott. You know what? You spell your name B-E-R-T? B-E-R-T. Okay, I see it misspelled occasionally, mostly by me. Okay. <laughs> and is it B-E-R-G-E-R? Or is it B-U-R. burger? B-U-R. As in hamburger. Right. Yep. Right, right, right. When was the last time you danced? I danced? Oh, well, had a little bit of a drunken stumble about three weeks ago. If you can just talk a little bit closer into the mic, that's killer. Yeah, okay. Thank, yeah, so like you. I said, I had a little bit of a drunken stumble about three weeks ago, but uh, I, I used to dance a lot, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, when I lived in Bangkok, um, it was kind of like a way of keeping fit. Yeah. Yeah, so pretty much, well, once a week I'd go out and hit a club for five or six hours with my missus and we'd just like, you know, dance off some calories. Yeah. <laughs> Are you married now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've been... Uh, I have a Thai wife. Been with her for about twelve years. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. But no more dancing. Uh, I don't know. Like I just, uh, 
I just feel like I don't have the energy to do it anymore. You know, yeah. I have a bit of a dance, and five minutes later, I'm clutching my heart, going, oh, "I've got to sit down." <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I read on some of the bio stuff on your website that yeah. honestly, where did the dance thing come from? It's just to break up, though. It's just to get started. You know, to throw you a curveball, really, to kind of... All right. I mean, I could get right into, like, the who, what, when, where, why stuff, which okay. I'm about to do, but... All right. So, I know that you, you're from Western Australia. Whereabouts in Western Australia in regards to Perth? Uh, I came... I grew up in a spot called uh, Waikiki Beach. Uh, it's about probably an hour's drive south of the city, um, sort of between a spot called Rockingham and Mandra. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, I suppose you'd call it, it's one of Perth's local areas like uh, wave locations, like the, the section of coast around Perth, there's only waves in limited spots. There's a lot of outer reefs and there's a lot of islands that kind of stop the swell from getting in. Mm. And there's a few spots where there's a gap and where those gaps are, swell can kind of pick its way between the reefs and get to the shore. And then sort of south of where I grew up, then the waves start from there. And then you go another hour south, another hour and a half south again, and you're in the Margaret River region. Right, okay. And, uh, yeah, plenty of waves down there. Plenty of surf for you. And I also read that you started quite young. I mean, and you were, according to your bio, you were comfortable in the ocean at age five. Yeah, well, I got, first got put on a board when I was about two. Uh, like my whole family surfed, all my uncles and my mum even my grandfather. So I just got put on a board and pushed into waves like before I could even walk basically. Yeah. And then I just had this really early addiction for surfing. And then when I was about three years old, uh, my uncle bought me a little surfboard for my birthday. And because we lived right on the beach, I could just sneak off and go to the beach as a toddler. Yeah. Just run across the road. Yeah. Uh, or run across. Yeah, we basically just had a, a road between our house and the beach, but it was just a quiet little road. Like maybe five cars a day might have driven down the road. Like yeah. it was, you know, like a beachside, uh, beach shack, holiday town kind of thing. You know, you'd have people there over the Christmas holidays and maybe school holidays, but generally it was just a quiet little sort of. And the water, water's warm? Yeah. Like the water would be. Oh, look, between 20 and 23 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in uh, Fahrenheit. Me either. Could, could be <laughs> it like, sounds warm. It's kind of, yeah, you know, I, I think it's in the 70s somewhere. I do too, yeah. I think yeah. it is. Um, and so then what happened was I went down there one time when I was about three and lost my board and started sinking to the bottom. And a neighbour who was on the beach saw me, like, drowning, come out, rescued me, took me home, had a bitch to my mum. A couple of weeks later, same thing happened again. Uh, and this same neighbour actually rescued me twice because I'd just snuck out. So he accused my mum of, like, negligence yeah. and pretty much well said, look, you know, you just can't let this kid... You didn't know how to swim? Well, at three, I wasn't yeah. the best swimmer, no. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and then what happened after that was my surfboard got confiscated. By your mum, you mean? By my mum. Yeah. Yeah, she basically said, no, nah, look, no way, you can't just take your board and run across the road and go surfing by yourself you know someone's got to be with you but the little spot where we live there was heaps of holiday shacks all around us and nearly everybody had a surfboard stashed in their garage or under their house so then I went and stole a surfboard (laughs) and this is an auspicious beginning for you (laughs) I think look honestly I think I I didn't even know I was stealing I think at three you don't know no yeah. yeah and so what happened was 
as I'm walking to the beach, my grandfather, he lived about eight houses up the road and he's sitting there watching TV and he looks out the window and he actually sees me and he knows I'm banned from surfing and he sees me walking to the beach with a board under my arm by myself. Anyway, I get to the beach, I'm in the water for maybe five minutes and my grandfather shows up, plucks me out of the water, takes me home totally grills out my mum again yeah uh i was in trouble mum was in trouble uh and so after that my mum and my grandfather they just walked the couple of blocks around our place and every vacant property that had a surfboard they basically just put them out of my reach right and then after that i wasn't allowed to go to the beach and surf unless i was accompanied by someone yeah yeah and um and just i reckon it was probably about a month after i turned five um I was able to like, you know, paddle out, catch waves, wipe out, lose my board, come in, get it, go back out. Yeah. And I think after that, that was about the time where I was allowed to be unsupervised again. Yeah. 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 And and I understand that you you made your first board or you attempted to make your first board at around age eight or nine, right? Yeah, that wasn't it was actually just a, a hack at shaping. Yeah. Um, like a nine year old with a saw. Yeah, it was a nine-year-old with a with a surf form, basically. Yeah, uh, I think as I was actually eight at the time, um, I had a couple of really good foam surfboards. I had one called a Surfer Sam, and another one called a Little Ripper. And when you say foam, you mean like a like a, 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 a styrofoam? A, it was like high density styrofoam. Right, right. Yeah, just just a piece of foam. Yeah. Um, and the Little Ripper and Surfer Sam were actually really good boards. They were kind of like a shortboard outline. They had a flat bottom with a light V. They had a bit of edge. I mean, these things, you could bottom turn and they had squirt and you could get some down-the-line speed. Um, And so I had one and I snapped it. Uh, Mum got me another one, you know, maybe a month, six weeks later. uh, And I broke that one too. And she's like, fuck, I'm not getting you another one, you know. And I was devastated. But I had this old board polystyrene board um uh like you know we used to call them foamies yeah and it was called a gts and it was basically modeled on a long board and it was like look i'd say it was probably five foot long you know 22 inches wide and it was just a block of foam it was like a loaf of bread i mean the thing just didn't function <laughs> like if you took a wave and tried to turn it just went sideways and you just went to the wa- went to the beach sideways in the white water so I got that. I borrowed a surfform or a heavy woodworking rasp. I grabbed it off my grandfather and I tried to reshape the board to try and make it look like my surfer Sam. And I mean, I just totally butchered it. Yeah. But one thing I noticed was that it actually did go better. And I think that was the... So at that age, I kind of already had it in my head that different surfboards give you different performance. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And then I know it right around in your early teen years or 12 or 13, you, you built your first board from start to finish. Yeah, that was at 12. Um, I, I was, my mum was really poor. Uh, like I was like a... Was your dad around at this time? Nah, he, he, him and my mum split when I was about two. Do you, do you have any relation with your father? Uh, well, unfortunately, he passed away back in uh, 2006, but... I did meet my dad um, for the first time when I was about 27. Hmm. Uh, What was that like? That was pretty cool. Yeah? Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, super intelligent guy. Um, I mean, no animosity on your side? 
Oh, the there might have been a little bit to begin with, but I mm. think I only I had 27 years of my mum's side of the story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but when I got to know him, fuck, he was just such a good guy, um, super intelligent, super motivated. It, yeah. and this like is you. The, this is the crazy part, right? Yeah. Um, like, I feel I'm a real genetic, uh, what would I say, hybrid between my mum and my dad. Yeah. You know, like, my dad was kind of uh, hardworking, inventive, business-like, you know, always looking for better solutions. Um, and my mum was like a, a surfer party chick. Mm. <laughs> I see more of your mum than, you, than your dad. <laughs> But um, the interesting thing was my dad started telling me about my family history uh, back in Holland yeah. uh, where my family was from uh, Amsterdam. And on his side, um, he was the last person in the family to inherit the family business and to learn the family trade. And that was wooden boat building was and be engineering. Uh-huh. And when... He met me, he couldn't believe it because I'd never had anything to do with my family. And here I am in Australia with my own business building wooden surfboards. That's fascinating. And yeah, it was like of all the things you could do with your life, you yeah. end up following the path of your ancestors. That's pretty cool. And that's, yeah. it makes you wonder about the DNA and the genetics of yeah. it all and how much it's just kind of like Twilight Zone shit. Well, well I, prior to that, I used to believe that people were a product of their environment. Yeah. Um, and... In my family, on my mum's side, because I grew up with them, they used to call me the white sheep of the family. I don't know if you've ever seen the Munsters. Yeah. And you've got this one girl. Yeah. And she's got blonde hair. And she's kind of like normal. Yeah. Trying to remember her name. But... Yeah. Um, and then the rest of the family are kind of real all freaky and abstract. Yeah. Well, a lot of people always would say to me, how did you come out of that family just as a normal person, you know? <laughs> um and then when I met my dad, it was crazy because we had like the same tastes in clothing, even our posture and our mannerism, yeah. the food we liked, our attitude towards work and life and religion and philosophy, yeah. uh, our taste in women. I mean, it was just uncanny. Yeah, that's yeah. weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Because it's an, it's an interesting experiment that you don't see all the time. Yeah. The idea it. that, hey, I haven't seen you for 27 years and we're very, very similar. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Hey, a quick break in the podcast to tell you about FYI CBD. My friends Caleb and John are the brain trust behind FYI CBD. Scientific studies show CBD provides therapeutic medicinal benefits. Among other things, it soothes nausea and vomiting, acts as an antioxidant to reduce free radicals that cause neurodegenerative disorders, and works as an anti-inflammatory to reduce swelling and pain. CBD also stimulates appetite. Use promo code BOARDROOM20, BOARDROOM20 at checkout for 20% off. FYI, CBD, get out of pain, give it a try right now. BOARDROOM20 at checkout, FYICBD.com. But you were saying, I was asking about uh, 12 years old, you built your first surfboard. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so uh, that was a sidetrack, wasn't it? <laughs> well, no, that's what we do on this show. Uh, yeah, get I'm going to ask you point. about dancing in a minute. All right. Um, yeah, so what happened was I grew up as a single uh, child with a single parent, and, and we were kind of bitterly poor. Yeah. And all my mates were getting new boards. Yeah. And I was just like, there's no way I can get a new board. You know, it's not even... 
I'm not even going to come close. I did. My mum actually came into some money when I was about ten. She got an inheritance from my. Uh, oh, sorry, I was about nine. She got an inheritance from uh, my great grandfather dying, and so with that, I actually got a, a glass board bought for me. So mm-hmm. I had one. Yeah. Had that for three years. Uh, what kind of board was that? That was just a six ten single fin. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like you know that's what everybody rode in the seventies. Few yeah. guys rode twin fins, but predominantly it was single fins. Yeah. Uh, around nineteen eighty. Just a local Perth shaper or a local? No, nah, it was actually a, it was a board from, from? Uh, Queensland oh. uh, by a guy called Les Purcell, mm, Alexandra yeah. Headlands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, look, you know, it was just a just a nice, clean, rounded pin single sure. fin. Sure. But uh, yeah, so around that, around about eighty, the thruster started appearing, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I had friends that were getting new thrusters, and I'm just like, well. Man, I'm I'm never going to get a new board. So I found an old board on the like a roadside giveaway. You know when it's like uh, mass rubbish throwout day. Found a board and went. All right, cool board. I can do something with that. Stripped all the glass off. Um, my mum had an old cotton bed sheet that she was going to throw out, and it had enough area to wrap around a board. And I went to the hardware store and I bought a tin of resin for twelve dollars. And basically, yeah, shaped down, a, reshaped an old board down to the foam, uh, glassed it with a cotton bed sheet. Um, what made you decide? How did you know that a cotton bed sheet would make sense? Did you just look at something that had some fiber weave in it? And well, decide that's why I, I used to see my uncles a lot tinkering with boards, doing snap repairs, okay. um, fixing fins. So I knew you had to use. So I'd seen fiberglass fabric. Yeah, um, and in fact, like I'd already. I think I started repairing my own board at about 10 years. In fact, I actually started repairing my uncle's and cousin's boards because their boards were also stashed at our beach house uh, that we lived in. And so their boards were there when they came down from the city. And I was kind of using their boards under the radar and damaging them. So they actually forced my mum to buy a board for me right. because they were sick of their boards getting trashed. So and fixing their boards, you, you used... Resin. Res- but you used fiberglass? Or did you use... Like- uh, it was kind of like... There was a few... There was some glass, but, you know, like... A, a I mean, I'm fascinated that you little- decided to choose a, a cloth, a bed sheet to glass your first well, surfboard with. Basically, in a repair kit, you get little tiny pieces of fabric. Yeah. So, obviously, I'm not going to glass a whole board with right, that. Right, right. Yeah. But so, so I knew there was fiberglass cloth in a board. Right. Uh, but there's no way that I could afford to get some. Right. And so cotton bed sheet seemed like and and i think at the time i didn't even know what fiberglass was yeah, yeah. you know like what's a, it made from it was just a weave yeah yeah, yeah. and you saw something that had a weave yeah. Like, yeah yeah that's it so you made your first board at 12 reshaping it down from this board you got it yeah it was a 610 gns that i found on the side of the road uh, yeah did you make it better <laughs> yeah look i i will admit you know when i rode my mates boards they were all way better you yeah. know the, the board it was it was kind of an ugly board yeah. Um, tar rocker was way too flat and uh, I think I set the f- uh, fin too far forward it had this habit of like you go into a turn and it would just kind of spin 180 degrees uh-huh. kind of go backwards for a while and then come back around it surfed uh-huh. very flat yeah. 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 yeah difficult to get on rail hmm. hey a quick break in the podcast to tell you about the boardroom international surfboard show presented by US Blanks May 2nd and 3rd, 2020 in Del Mar, California, the multi-layered surfboard manufacturing industry with shapers, glassers, sanders, artists, surfboards, wetsuits, fins, 
tons of gear, a publicly facing trade show, the Boardroom International Surfboard Show presented by U.S. Blanks. Coming to the Delmar Fairgrounds May 2nd and 3rd, boardroomshow.com. Not soon after that, you you started working full-time in the surf industry. Yeah. Like around 14 or 15. Yeah, 14. So yeah. did you quit school? I, I did. I snuck out. Oh, well, no, I, I didn't sneak out. I Look, I went. I did an internship at 14 at Town & Country Surfboards. Where, is it, where was that? That was uh, at a spot called uh, Hamilton Hill, mm-hmm. you know, sort of still south of the city. Yeah. In industrial area. Yeah, yeah. You know, 40-minute bus ride from where I lived. Did an internship there. Um, at the end of two weeks, one of the guys who worked there said to the boss, they said, hey, Nico, this guy's good. We should give him a job. Um, and I'm like, yeah, cool. I'll start next week. Yeah. And uh, But you're not, you know, in, in Australia at the time, I'm not sure what the laws are now, but basically legal leaving school age was 15. Mm. So even though it may have been the beginning of the year, if your birthday was in January or February, you could basically leave right. school if you right. were 15 years old, even though you hadn't completed school. Right. Uh, well, my birthday wasn't until the end of the year, so I was 14. I couldn't legally leave, but I left anyway and took this job up um, and just went straight to work. And what were you doing at TNC? Uh, look, I started out, you know, cleaning Sweeping the shape and bay, yeah. um, you know, things like cutting out fins, laying up fin panels, uh, ding repairs. And is this where you got sort of a foundational understanding of, of the way boards are built? Yeah. From an industrial standpoint? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And who were some of the guys there? Do you remember any? Was there like a, a mentor or a guy that you look at today and go, God, that guy really was a great guy? Uh, yeah, that would have been a guy called Twig, Kevin Charland. Yeah. Yeah. Is he still with us? No, he uh, he passed away in 2004. He was uh, he did a lot of photography, and mm-hmm. so he ended up um, becoming a professional photographer. And at the time when he passed away, uh, he was being paid by Billabong to pretty much all just follow Taj around the world and take photos of him. And... Um, yeah, he passed away in France, in uh, in Hossegur, and it was kind of suspicious circumstances. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, That's like, you know, word on the street is that he was murdered, but it was like, you know, it, it all just... Who knows? To this day, you know, there's still a few people I'd like to really ask that might possibly know, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So so this guy, Twig, he, he was sort of a guy that was at the TNC factory. Yeah. That was kind of like... He, kind of helped you understand some yeah. of the greater nuances of surfboard building. Uh, probably. Or no. like, like he was actually pretty good. He had a very good eye for detail and a really high standard of work. And he pretty much all just um, forced me to do good work. Right. Yeah. How did you do a high standard? Um, yeah, so he forced me in such a way that uh, it was physical punishment if I did bad work. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, 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 what kind of physical punishment? Like, well, I used to get this thing called a cork, yeah. which was like he'd get your middle knuckle, this knuckle, yeah. and just jam it into my arm. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'd get a knee in the side of the leg. Right, okay. Because uh, he was a bony little fucker. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, so there was those two. Um, All right. So. And I, 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 <laughs> I said this one before, fuck, I tell you. Um, and and if I was working, and he couldn't, and he couldn't hit me, yeah. because a couple of times I'd be working with resin, he could see I was fucking up. He'd come and piss on my leg. Oh my god! 
This guy's quite a character. Yeah. Right. Yeah, oh, I tell you, he was a real – anyone who knows Twig. Yeah. Is uh, he a pretty well-known guy in Australia? He, I, Am I ignorant here? Like everyone knows Twig except me? Yeah, look, at, at the time, he, you know, a lot of crew knew Twig. And because yeah. he was on tour with the WSL right. for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he, the guy was a, an, a really classic character. I think a lot of people out there have got Twig stories. Right. Yeah. For sure. And one of them needs to be dug into a little deeper, how he passed away. I think that's interesting. Hmm. Um, changing gears a little bit. Um, I ran into you and Greg Lore. I don't. I, I want to say it was like 15 years ago, but I could be off by five years either way. 2006, I think. Okay. Yeah. And you guys were surfing at Carter Freef, and, yeah. and and was I'm I'm just wondering, was this like the first iteration of what you were doing with sandwich construction boards and firewire back no, then? No, it okay. was the first iteration of firewire. Okay. But sandwich construction at that point was already 15 years old. I mean, your experience with it. Yeah. 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 Okay, so let's take me back to that. Like, So we understand that there's this sort of standard construction where you shape a poly blank or even an EPS blank and you put yeah. gl- glass and resin on it. And, and what got you from that sort of standard building construction to, hey, man, I think there's a better way or I want to find a better way or there's got to be a better way? Uh, there was uh, two... Assuming that sandwich construction is a better way, which I know you are yeah. a firm believer. Okay, so there was two, two or three uh, things that, that prompted that direction. One was uh, when I was about 15, I'd seen some stock standard EPS shaping glass boards that had come from America and they'd made their way to uh, Australia. Excuse me. And... Um, they were just light and strong. They were um, Ocean Rhythms, Clyde Beatty boards. Yeah. Uh, 1.5 pound, two layers of six ounce on the bottom, three layers of six ounce on the deck. The boards weighed about six pound. Wow. Yeah. They were light. They were strong. They had good flex. I remember I got to – there was three of them that came over. Uh, I got to ride one. And sorry, I, actually I was 16 at the time. And it was the first time that I ever actually completed an aerial manoeuvre yeah. on my backhand. And I was just like, wow, these things are amazing. Anyway, a few months pass and they snap and they're gone. Yeah. Later on, I'm working at a spot called H2O. And I was always asking my boss, Ronnie, can, can we get some EPS? Can we get some epoxy? Remember those boards that Cole bought over from the US last year? You know, like, can, can we experiment? And he would say stuff like, come on, Bert, i got a business to run. I don't have time to fuck around and, and experiment with this shit. You know, like, if you want to play with this stuff, why don't you go out and start your own business? And I'm like, ding, that's a good idea. Yeah. So then I made plans in the following year to go out and start my own business with the sole purpose that when I opened the door, I was going to start trying to use or find uh, alternative materials to build surfboards from. Then in the course of that first year, heading up to the city to buy raw materials, I came across a guy who built sailboards, sandwich construction, PVC skins over a lightweight EPS core. I pick up this giant sailboard. It's like 10 foot long, 2 foot wide, 4 inches thick, and, and the thing was like, 15 pounds. pound yeah. I mean it was crazy just so light and yeah. so strong and instantly I could already see that hey sandwich gives you way better results as far as strength to weight ratio than shape and glass EPS 
And so that gave me the concept of sandwich. So I said to him, look, sell me everything I need right now so I can make surfboards like this. Yeah. No idea how to do it, but, you know, he gave me a few pointers. And I bought the basic raw materials, which was the PVC, the EPS, and the epoxy resin. And Did you ever think to reach out to Clyde Beatty and say, hey, I'm interested in what you're doing? I know his wasn't construct, sandwich construction, but well, as far as the resin work, there was a lot of tinkering that needed to be done. Oh, look, not really. I think when you build a shape and glass EPS, it, you're pretty much all using the same techniques as a PU blank yeah. and polyester resin. Right. You're just swapping the materials. Right. But the process but the is the curing is a little, can be a little, especially yeah. back then, right? Yeah, look, but curing does take longer. I think, you know, back, back then a lot of crew weren't that interested in it for production because of the fact that it did just take longer to work. It was volatile with. too, right? Like yeah. sometimes it, it would just come out discolored or there was just volatility involved. It wasn't as guaranteed as a PU construction. I'm oh, assuming that. For sure. Look, you had you had issues with temperature, uh, you know, if you got the mix ratio wrong, uh, sanding times. You, I don't think it was difficult to make them look quality. Exactly. Um, yeah. But that's where sandwich is different, yeah. you know, because you've got – if you're using a high-density foam, it, it looks like PU. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a different colour. Yeah. You know, so... And uh, if you're using timber, well, you've got the timber look. The next California Gold Surf Auction takes place May 2nd. The California Gold Surf Auction serves the global audience of premium surfboard and surf memorabilia collectors, providing perpetual access to the marketplace with decades of historical expertise and millions of dollars in sold inventory. Lots begin closing in succession May 2nd at noon Pacific Standard Time. CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com. So anyway, so basically with when I saw that, I thought, yep, sandwich construction, that's the way to go. And then from there, it probably took about three years before I actually had something which you could consider a sellable product. Yeah. So it was about three years of, of tinkering to try and figure out, you know, how to vacuum bag, how to get the right pressure, how to keep the rockers, how to stop the boards from failing in certain places, where to reinforce them. Um, and you're obviously hand-shaping all of these boards yourself. Yeah, yeah. And and shaping that EPS can be somewhat difficult. I'm sure you're completely used to it now, but, I mean, there are certain bits in the in the planers and well, stuff. Well, I think it's need. difficult because it's too easy. Oh, really? I mean, it's so soft. It pops off, right? It's It's so, like, one wipe of a sanding block. And you've done too much. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's where it's – you've got to have a, a – what would I call it? A steady hand, a, a sort of a fine touch. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Because, you know, PU, you can sort of, you know, be a little bit more aggressive with it. Mm-hmm, and, yeah. you know, you've got – you know, it maybe takes three or four wipes with a sanding block to kind of get it where you want, whereas EPS, you can go one. Oh, fuck, gone too far. Right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> So I interrupted you, but you're you're saying that you basically found the what you consider the magic formula, as far as construction. Got lucky. Yeah. Got lucky. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, around '92. Well, okay. So I built built sandwich boards. Well, I try to build sandwich boards with PVC and a whole range of materials, veneers, different foams, and I just didn't have any success. And I actually gave up. Yeah. Um, after about eighteen months, and just shelved the whole project. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my head, I had a few things I needed to solve. I needed to make the rail stronger and I needed to find a sandwich material, which was higher density, but thinner. 
to give me better flex characteristics. Mm-hmm. And so, but... It's, you mean the it, product in the middle, the actual thing that you're sandwiching? Uh, the, the, PVC. The, the sandwich foam, the stuff on the outside. Okay. So you've got your EPS core, right. but then the shell that you build around the outside, right. that kind of needs certain properties mm. as far as flex, density, spring back, mm. uh, and PVC and other foams and veneers at the time just weren't really giving me a performance board. Mm-hmm. You know, like So I just kept making and writing PUs because all my EPS experiments were just not as good. Yeah. Uh, in one reason or another. At the end of the day, it was about performance for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you were willing to go back to the old way if it was just better. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Even though the board didn't last, I didn't care. I wanted a board that performed. Yeah. But I had in my head a, a, a range of density and a certain thickness um, of a sandwich material, but it just didn't exist. And I thought, well, whatever. If it doesn't exist, what can I do? And then one day, just randomly... This guy walks into my business and he says, hey, you want to buy some balsa? And I'm like, how thick is it? He said, it can be any thickness you want. And I go, how heavy is it? And he said, oh, about 120, 140 kilo cubic meter. I'm like, wow, perfect density. And I can get it whatever thickness I want. So literally, I put in an order for some. He come and delivered it. Um, And the very first board I built is actually still, still being surfed today. Yeah. Yeah, cool. it's almost like I just nailed the very first one <laughs> because I uh, I didn't nail it in terms of how to produce it, yeah. but the finished product was spot on. Right. Um, and it just kind of went from there. And, and we went into production actually relatively quick. Oh, look, it probably still took another probably still took another 18 months or maybe another year of mucking around to get that right, to, to try and refine a production process with the materials so just for my own clarity we've got an eps foam core we've got the balsa that a layer of glass then a layer of glass yep so that's what sandwiches yeah so you've got the the balsa is sandwiched by fiberglass either side right and it's an epoxy resin and an epoxy resin yeah so if you go from the core out you got eps fiberglass and epoxy balsa fiberglass and epoxy oh i see okay and There's fiberglass and epoxy underneath and, and on top. And over the of, top. Right, yeah, the and so that's your sandwich. I got you. Yeah. Interesting. What was the name of that board? Like, what was the name of your company? Were you, what, were, what were you selling your boards under once you got to a place where you were... were uh, did you get to a comfortable place of production where you were moving boards out of Western Australia to all your friends and all your clients? Yeah, look, it, look I, I made a living. Like, I, I've never... Like, I started my own business in 1988, um, probably by about 92 the balsa boards had emerged. Yeah. Um, so between 88 and 92, I was just pumping out PUs. Yeah. Um, then between, say, 92 and 95, I was building both PU and uh, EPS balsa sandwich boards. And then what happened was around 95, I had a whole rack full, a shop full of PUs. And I was selling them for... $480. And I had a six or seven month waiting list for my balsa epoxies, and I was selling those at $600. And I'm like, why am I even making PUs yeah. when everyone's lining up at the door to get one of these like balsa epoxy boards? Yeah. I suddenly saw that I saw no future in PU. Yeah. And I thought, well, I've got a, I've got a shop full of boards that sit there and don't sell. 
and yeah. they're 20% cheaper, and yet people are willing to wait longer to get a custom bolster board. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and honestly, they were lighter, they were stronger, they performed better, they were worth the money. So at that point in 95, I said, fuck it, I'm not even going to build PU anymore. Yeah. In hindsight, that was a mistake. Why? Because I, my clientele changed. Uh, like at that point when I was still building PU, I was kind of uh, covering my, – my demographic was quite broad. You know, you were sort of covering everybody. Yeah, like beginners uh, to Beginners to experienced guys yeah. and so on, you know. Whereas when I started doing the bolster boards, I found that I was dealing with a wealthier clientele who didn't mind splashing out more money for something more exclusive and better, um, generally older. My average customer was now mid-40s yeah. uh, with a little extra cash. Yeah. Um, and kids couldn't afford them. Yeah. So the grommets stopped buying my boards. But then later on, five and ten years later, when these grommets have got jobs and they were actually like could afford to buy one, um, they'd already locked into other brands. Yeah. They'd created like a trading or a purchasing relationship with other guys. Yeah. And then it was more difficult to kind of get them to come over mm-hmm. because that already sort of had some um, brand loyalty to other brands. Right. Whereas had I kept making PUs to satisfy the grommets, I reckon that would have just led into those guys coming on board. So, Interesting. Yeah. 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 You know, you must look at guys like me who I ride PUs. I've been surfing for as long as you forever. And... <laughs> <coughs> And I still Excuse me. order PUs with a stringer down the middle. I mean, and I guess I'm okay with it. Like, do you just look at guys like me and scratch your head and go, dude, you are missing the boat here? Well, look, it, it, it works. You know, it's the status quo. It's functional. You can go out and catch waves and have fun. Um, but look, I suppose it's like this. You know, you jump in a car and you drive it and it's functional and it gets you from A to B and it does the job. And then you can jump in some cars and they're just more pleasurable to drive. Yeah. You know, your sports car, your race car, yeah. you know, they corner better, they accelerate more, and right. you just get a little bit more pleasure out of driving them. Right. Um, but essentially they're still performing, they're both performing the same function. Yeah, there's a smile on my face at the end of the day, regardless of what I'm riding. But yeah. It'd be neat if I wasn't in a combi van, I should probably be in a Ferrari. Yeah. A quick break in the podcast to tell you I'm going surfing in Indonesia this year in the Telos Islands at the Monkeys Resort. It's a luxury Telos Islands surf resort in Sumatra, Indonesia. I've been out to the Telos before. The waves are super fun, absolutely rippable. And Monkeys Resort provides better access to those premier Telos Island waves. Monkeysresort.com. Book your trip now. The season starts very soon. I'm excited to be going. I've got a bunch of boards on order, and me and some buddies are geeking madly. So Monkeys Surf Resort, monkeysresort.com. Check them out. Do you still keep in touch with Greg Laura? Are you guys friends? Do you mm. communicate? Like, I, yeah, no, I had a great rap with Greg yesterday. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, good. Because yeah, listeners like, might not know, but Greg uh, is this kind of like um, – in many ways, he's a futurist like you. Like he's always been thinking about what's next, never yeah. sort of relying on what's. In the oh, past. look, honestly, it was. Uh, look, I think Greg was actually instrumental. Greg Law. Greg Law. Yeah. yeah, I think Greg Law was absolutely instrumental 
in um, in kind of launching my career uh, to a to a higher level. Mm. As far as he was the one who had credibility and could recognise the value of something new. You know, like to look at something and go, yeah, that's a good idea, that's a bad idea. And so for him to come out straight up and say, hey, this shit's good, this is going somewhere, and get behind it and want to team up with us, um, I think that spoke a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of validation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that validation kind of coming into the U.S. market, basically. Yes. He, it was great that he was like, hey, everybody, I'm waving yeah. the flag over here. You guys should too, and yeah. that helps. Yeah, and, then, and looking at the time, it was actually uh, – you know, I'd sort of – when I started working with Greg, that was basically when, when Firewire started. You know, right. so it was still in, I was still in Australia doing boards under the Sunover label, actually working with Nev. Uh, Nev saw it first, and I did him a bit of a deal, and we – Did Nev serve that purpose that Greg Lore served in the USA market? Did Nev validate the Australian market for you? Uh, or is – Oh, look, I don't know. It, it all kind of happened too quick. There yeah. wasn't enough time, you know, like – we the boards were only getting built under the Nev label for probably three or four months. Yeah, just just not enough time. But it was it was long enough to put the boards under the Fetus and Pros, and it was long enough for people to be exposed to the boards to know that hey, there's something really unique and different here. Um, that Who are has- some of those guys? Like was it like guys riding for Nev, like Sonny Garcia or um, Munga? Uh, look, who, who was it at the time? There or Taj? Was, um, Probably Taj. Well, there was Taj. Ta- Taj was the one that actually ended up eventually coming on board. Um, but I think a number of boards got thrown out. I think, I think there was guys like Joel Parkinson, Mick yeah. Fanning. Even yeah. though they weren't Nev riders, yeah. they were just on the they were in the gold on the Gold Coast right. in, in that kind of scene. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you had another guy, Dean, Danny Wills, and yeah. Dean Morrison, I yeah, think. Dingo, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, the boards ended up under the feed of maybe six or seven pros. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually it was, uh, it, I mean, everything happened all at once, like literally within the space of... When you say everything happened, you mean the whole Firewire thing sort of manifesting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah honestly, like within the space of, oh, man, honestly, like w- within the space of eight months, yeah, um, it was like... New construction, new product, people seeing it going, wow, this is great. We could start a business with this. Millions of dollars getting thrown in, a new company getting set up, Clark, Firewire. Clark Foam Closing. At exactly that's, the same time. That's sort of like the big one. Yeah. Um, and then you had guys like Dougal with the dollars, Matthew Perrin, Mark Price coming in as CEO, sales. Um, you know, you had the dollars, you had Pro Surface coming in saying, yeah, I want to ride these things. And then, you know, next minute you got a brand, you got pros, you got guys on tour. And it was just like with, within the space of 12 months, it was kind of like Out of from an idea to a corporation. Do you think it went too fast? And that along the way there was some oh, egos shattered or some... It, I, look, I think, it, uh, I think it had the resources to go too fast. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I saw a lot of money getting wasted but hey if you've got the money and you want to get it set up quick then go for it yeah. I don't even really know the the history with you and how you leaving Firewire occurred and there's been a lot of discourse about it online you yeah, know I, I never actually answered the question like uh, I, I left it alone 
until just like three months ago when I did another um, podcast with Tyler over in New York. And Tyler actually asked, asked me behind the scenes, actually off air, uh, what the deal was. You mean he didn't pin it on you like I'm doing right now? <laughs> no, well, he did. It did, it did come up. But yeah. off air, he, he wanted to know. And I said, well, he wanted to know why nobody knew. Right. And I said, well, I went to Nick Carroll, right? Nick Carroll was the first guy that I said, hey, Nick, uh, I'm out of Firewire. Um, what do you reckon I should do as, as opposed, uh, as, you know, to do with, like, media and, and what should I tell people? And uh, he said, look, don't tell anybody anything until no one asks you the question anymore. And, you know, probably oh, over 10 years went by. You know, it's been 14 years now. Yeah. Um, but eventually, you know, there was rumour and rumour and rumour. Because um, I, I kind of, you know, the reasons I left could have been, if I'd made them public at the time, could have been detrimental to those guys. And mm-hmm. pro- and even me too, you know. You For don't sure. want to say bad shit about For people. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, but when I look back, I think my my reasons were just... Yeah. and right and for those guys too you know it was kind yeah. of like a mutual split yeah. um they felt i was being a little disruptive because i was adamant about certain procedures and quality and certain materials being used right and i wasn't willing to back down right. and and duga what do i say look this doesn't have to be the ferrari of surfboards yeah. we're not making ferraris here yeah. but i used to make them yeah and so i didn't like the fact that we weren't making them anymore I look back now and think, well, that's a valid marketing decision. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, Firewire's goal was to make a board that was better than a PU. Yeah. But it didn't have to be a Rolls-Royce or a Ferrari. Yeah. It just had to be better than PU. So they kind of came back down a little from what Sunover was. Did the price point of what your conception of what that should look like, the Ferrari should look like, did the price point meet a Ferrari price point? In other words, did... Was Dougal looking at like, dude, we've got to get down to this price point for the consumer. We know this is the place where they're comfortable. To yeah. do that, we might need to change a few things. Absolutely. And so that's where you kind it of was, went. It no, was all about profit. Like as a small board builder, you don't, you're not that concerned about huge margins. You know, as long as you can pay the bills, you're okay. Yeah. But as a company with and investors. as a corporation yeah. with investors yeah. who are demanding profit, yeah. And when you're paying, like, you know, executives, CEOs, sales guys, yeah. reps, I mean, you're creating a machine where you need to make money. And basically, profit comes from creating a product at the cheapest possible price and then creating an image of value where you can sell it at the highest possible price. So, yeah. And, and I, I felt that the way the boards were being built as other guys came into the business and said, all right, now we can do them quicker. We can cut down the lead times. Okay, now instead of taking 11 days to build, we're going to build them in seven. We're going to speed up this process. We're going to eliminate some of this material. We're going to yeah. swap the foam from this brand to that brand. We're going to use this fabric instead of that fabric. Yeah. All little was reasons. It, was, it a, was it a situation where you just felt like you didn't, You were the decision-making was taken out? Oh, I was totally not, you know, like... Uh, you, so it wasn't got, necessarily that they were the, bad decisions. It was that there were decisions that you weren't involved in. Well, they were decisions that I was involved in in the sense that I still had to agree 
to it. Right. You know, like Dougal would sit me down and go, look, Bert, come and look at this layup, look at these materials, and give me your honest answer. Is it better than a PU? Right. And I'd have to go, yeah, okay, we're good. Do you think those guys are going, okay, this all looks great, we got to bring Bert in here. Oh, shit, <laughs> I hope he signs off on this. Were they, was it yeah. kind of like you against five? Was it like a gang of five? Oh, definitely? yeah, well, it, it definitely was. But look, at, at the end of the day, <laughs> I just had to, you know, they just wanted to know, is it better than the status quo? Will this product be better than what everyone else is making? Yeah. The answer is yes, it is better. Therefore, it was good enough for them. Yeah. But for me, it was like, but no, it's not as good as it can be. And so that there was this conflict, you know. And when I look back, I can clearly see that for for marketing and, uh, I mean, you know, for, for financial reasons. All the business reasons that they that they had, which are all valid. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, in, in my case, I just wanted to be associated with the best possible boards you could build. Yeah. And so I – and then I, I also found that I personally didn't feel there was a career for me in that business. I almost felt like a cog in the system mm-hmm. um, in that uh, – my creativity and my yeah. ability to be creative was somewhat stifled and I had to uh, kind of work to a, you know, like I got asked to R&D certain things and then if I'd R&D those things, then maybe two or three years in the future, it may become a commercially viable product or get into production. And, and I it, just it, sense that your wings were clipped a little bit. Uh, and you're the type of guy that needs to be able to fly in all sorts of different directions. Absolutely. And, and like you said earlier, it wasn't necessarily... It was a good thing for both parties. Yeah, yeah. So for those guys, uh, you know, they no longer had me being disruptive and and this temperamental artist who was so fussy about quality uh, and particular procedures, you know, they didn't have to worry about me annoying them. Uh, And for me, I could just get back to doing my own thing and and just make the boards the way I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And and, and look, is there there any... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, at, at first too, like, so when we split, I was also a little concerned that maybe they weren't going to get over the line because there was a lot of money being spent to actually get this thing set up yeah. and not having any, you know, experience in business at that level before, uh, my concerns was that they'd blow all the money and the business would fall over and I didn't want to be part of it when it all came crashing down. Right. Um, that's pretty you know, conservative. That's a pretty conservative way to look at it which is sort of outside of the character that i and i don't know you that well but yeah. that's you know what i mean like that's an interesting it's almost a paradox i i kind of felt i got it wrong like i didn't i, I suppose i didn't give enough credit to the skill set of the guys in management and their ability to market promote and raise capital and get this whole thing off the ground yeah um you know like when if you look at companies like Billabong and, Billabong and Quicksilver and you're talking like millions and billions, I mean, you know, they'll get projects underway and they'll get things up and running. So I, I never, ha- I didn't have experience at that level and I, I, I kind of couldn't see it working. And so, you know how sometimes you make a call, you know, like when I first saw SUP, I went, this is going nowhere. Yeah. All right, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same with Firewire. You know, I kind of thought, no, I don't trust it. I don't want to be part of it when it comes down. Uh, wrong, yeah. and, and I look back now. Look, I mean, the guys are rolling. They've been going fourteen years. They've they've built something. They've I would cr- suggest, in many ways, it's 
it's good for your business Absolute, that they're a success. Absolutely. And that's what I realized afterwards is that uh, them being in business, continuing on, having pro surfers on the tour, showing that uh, the performance is actually valid and the fact that they stayed in business um, kind of gives us more credibility. You know, let's say Firewire had fallen over, um, maybe this whole sandwich thing and that direction in construction would have just fizzled out. Yeah. Yeah. But for the record, um, full transparency, Firewire is a client of mine, and, and I've ridden their boards, and I enjoy their boards, and they're yeah. good guys, and I'm, I'm ecstatic that, yeah. that they're a success. Yeah, I uh, was talking to Mark yesterday. I gave him a big hug, so we're mates. Oh, good. Was that the <laughs> first time you've had that? First time I've actually run into Mark – uh, in the flesh for about, yeah, 13 years. Okay, yeah. well, this is cool. So there yeah. was some uh, full circle. Oh, when I say in the flesh, I actually have had, you know, I have had... But I mean, there was a heart-to-heart, yeah. an eye-to-eye for yeah, the first absolutely. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so sweet. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. That's cool. I've got a question. I think you answered it, though. But my question is, why are there so many PU single stringer down the middle stringer boards in the marketplace? And Cheap and easy. Yeah. Cheap and, and easy. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's like, look, the customer, a lot of people, uh, you know, they, don't, they, they just don't know the nuances of, of design Well, And I would suggest that they couldn't even experience it. Like, you know, like 90% of the surfers, if you gave them a PU... And then, you know, like, they're just going to be like, yeah, I had fun. I rode both boards. They're both fun. Like, I yeah, don't know why absolutely. this one's better than the yeah. other one. Uh, look, it's the status quo because a number of reasons. It's, it's the cheapest possible way to build a board. It's the simplest, lowest tech possible way to build a board. Um, for your average consumer, a surfboard is a surfboard. You know, it's like, I, I'm, I remember hearing people make comments like, oh, oh, there's different types of surfboards. I thought there was only one, you know, one size, one shape, one construction. So, yeah, people don't even realise that there's a lot of variety out there. You need different boards for different waves and then, you know, you can build boards from different materials. And and so a surfboard's a surfboard and when people are going out and buying one, especially entry level, you yeah. know, when you're a kid, yeah. you just want the cheapest board you can get your hands on. A lot of the times it's parents that are making that decision. Yeah. Uh, and if they're non-surfer parents... They'll just go for the, the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Um, and the fact, too, that it's a simple product to build in your backyard. If you look at a car or a computer, I mean, you know, those factories need to be teched up. You can't build a car or a computer in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that kind of a beautiful thing? Yeah. That a young guy like Burt Berger at age 10 or 12 or whatever it is <laughs> can actually, like, build his own board and get, get inspired about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. neat, yeah. you know, and it's very rare. I, I'm seeing, uh, well, I think I'm seeing, it, it really feels like the whole backyard scene is re-emerging in a bigger way. Absolutely. And especially with alternative materials too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of creativity coming from backyarders. Um, Who do you speak of specifically, or is there like a region? Are you thinking like, like Byron Bay seems like a place where there's a lot of guys spinning out boards, like... Oh, look, there's a lot of guys on the gold. Oh, look, they're popping up everywhere. Look, yeah. I think now that you've got online forums yeah. where a whole world, you know, there's one one um, Facebook site that I quite often 
like tune into it's called Backyard Surfboard Shapers yeah. and I know it's ironic one of the guys once asked me they're like Bert what are you doing here you know you've got this kind of international like global brand you know what are you doing on this website Yeah. and I'm like well honestly I'm just a bigger backyarder than you guys are but I still feel like a backyarder for some reason you know? yeah well there's some there's something very charming about like a Sway Locks or this Facebook page where yeah. there's a lot of fresh energy there yeah. even if they don't know what they're doing maybe yeah. you can help them along and maybe well, you can that, pick that's the up. thing too you know like I've been in this business so long now I think uh what are we talking 37 you know this will be my 38th year of board building as yeah. you know officially uh as a you know profession and you don't look bad for 70 by the way <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I think you're telling me you're 38 years in. We're talking about sway locks. And- yeah, yeah, okay. So anyway, look, um, 38 years as a profession, and um, I, you know, I got to give something back. Like, what's the point of all that knowledge if you're not willing to share it? Like, I don't feel threatened anymore. Yeah. Sometimes you meet young guys who are in their 20s and they don't want to share their knowledge. Yeah. Because they kind of need it. Yeah. But I don't need it anymore. Yeah. For me. Yeah. You know, it's for sure. I, I'm way rather just help out other crew and give them little tips and tricks and make their life easier yeah and uh yeah share the knowledge you know do you think that um the backyard shaper is more of a threat to say like the north american usa board building manufacturing base than say like an asian imported surfboard i know that the u.s board builders are threatened once upon before asia uh board builders hated the backyarders for sure, backyarders were the bane of the industry. Yeah, um, because they didn't have the same costs, the same overheads. Uh, they could, you know, produce a board cheaper. Uh, the quality was usually lower. But look, at the end of the day, back then, before Asian imports, um, most entry level boards kind of went to the backyard sector. If people wanted to save money, they'd get a cheap backyard board. Yeah, um, I think. Look. A lot of guys who have full-time jobs uh, and they build a board or two here and there for themselves or maybe for their mates, that's no big deal. Yeah, that's – You know, the tinkering. Um, What I do see now or what I have heard from some board builders in Australia is the guy who actually tries to start a legitimate business as a board builder, but he's got like a job, maybe fly in, fly out, where he does like say – two weeks on, two weeks off, he's making good coin, comes and puts that coin into a surfboard manufacturing business on his two weeks off, pumps out boards, doesn't need to sell them for the price that he needs to make a profit and make money. Yeah, because it's like a vanity project. Yeah, so he's got a good paying job. So, But he's got the ability to kind of create a label and set it up. I think, you know, I've, I've kind of heard that people feel that guys in that situation are more disruptive than a guy that's just tinkering in his backyard. You know, the guy that's actually trying to get a, a business going, uh, you know, because if you're trying to get a business going from surfboards alone, it's way harder. But look, it's just, I don't know. Look, I suppose people are always going to feel threatened by something. Yeah. 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 Speaking of that, um, a question I often ask board builders is, I think it's the case that myself, Scott Bass, could buy a computer program and become a surfboard builder like next week without ever holding a planer. I can barely hold a hammer, Bert. Is it true that that you don't need to be a hands-on guy anymore to be a 
a surfboard label? Look, look, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think you still need to be creative and you still need design knowledge. But one industry that I look at is screen printing and sign writing. Once upon a time, to be a sign writer, man, you needed to be a talented artist. You needed to know how to use a brush and do script and draw freehand. And I mean, to be a good sign writer, screen printer, t-shirt printing, you had to be an artist. Now you've got like Illustrator, Corel Draw, digital printing, digital plotters, uh, you know, uh, fabric, uh, what do you call it, in, impregnation, all, all, all sorts of techniques. Yeah. And so literally I've seen people go out and start sign writing businesses with no artistic skill whatsoever because they can print everything and design everything on computer. Um, but that being said, uh, some people can just design better stuff on a computer. Yeah. So you still need to have some sort of uh, artistic skill. And the other thing is too, with surfboards, say, um, you still need to have an understanding of how a board works. Like I see a lot of guys, a lot of backyarders, and they, they download the light version of Shape3D and they create something and they go off and they get it cut and they bring it home and they try and glass it. And I, and I mean, there's some pretty average boards, yeah. you know, so yeah. they're, they're, you've still got to go through a learning curve as to right. what works. A, a hands-on learning curve. Yeah. Where I've got a screen in my hand or a planer or something where... Well, it's, even if it's not a hands-on, it's a, it's a design learning curve. You've designed something in digital, yeah. Yeah. you know, in, in the 3D world. You've designed it. That's going to become a product that you can go out and surf. But a guy like me, like I've put my hands on probably tens of thousands of surfboards. I've seen hundreds of thousands of surfboards. I've been surfing for 30-something years. That must translate. That's going to help. That's going to translate, yeah. right? So I'm just kind of fascinated by the idea of just a guy that has never actually put his hands on a blank deciding to start a surfboard company. And I think that exists. And I don't necessarily... It has happened. I don't know if that's bad or good. I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to put a moral judgment on it. I just think it's Well, like I said, I've seen it in the sign writing and screen printing business. Guys yeah. with no artistic skill uh, who can't use tools, who can... But the, the tools have just got better. The tools are computer. Yeah. Right? You That's know, the argument. CNC machines, robotics, yeah. you know, digital printing... Um, just lacks a little bit of authenticity, I think. And maybe that comes out in the end in the final product. Possibly. I still think it still needs to be designed and the concept still needs to come from somebody's mind. Changing things real quick before we end. Um, I have sort of a hankering for a, an all-wooden surfboard. Solid wood? Solid wood. No, yep. chambered. 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 Like, yep. So I was thinking... And when I say a wooden surfboard, I mean no fiberglass. I want wood on water. I've been told, I think Randy Rarick told me that that's like the most, that's the purest form of a surfboard is yeah, when you get wood on water. If you look at is a layer. Is that possible? Yeah, look at a layers. Right. It's just a piece of wood. Yeah, yeah exactly. Look at what the Hawaiians were riding. It's just a piece of wood. Well, that's the yeah. idea, but I need it to be, you know, seven pounds and, you know. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Well, can I chamber some polonia or is that too heavy? Oh, look, you like, could. Can I lay up? Uh, look, I'll, I'll be honest. I think the way the ancient Hawaiians built the alayas uh, is one of the better uh, methods for building a wooden board. You know, like the technology they had at the time, they come up with some pretty good shapes. Yeah. Because if you think about it, like they went really thin. But 
they had to go that thin because it's solid wood. And then by going so thin, they actually got flexy again. Right. And so, you know, if you try to shape a board that you'd normally see out of EPS or PU, if you made that shape in wood, yeah. it would have no flex. Right. And it just wouldn't go the same. Yeah. So every time you change the medium and you decide that you're going to make a board from a different set of materials, then there's going to be a different optimum shape yeah. that's going to work best with that material arrangement. Right. Yeah. Material changes everything regardless yeah. of the design. You know, like the materials will have different performance characteristics. Therefore, the design needs to change to take that into consideration right. to get the best out of it. And balsa is obviously pretty porous and pretty dampening and pretty flexy, and so that's yeah, why balsa it's, it's, seems it's to nice be and st- like, like the reason light. I use balsa. No, I, I still feel balsa goes better than polonia all day long. Um, you know, whenever I have a polonia board, well, look, it's not bad, but I mean, it's almost like the, it's almost like the difference between a Ferrari and a Ferrari with a little bit of air out of the tires. Mm. You know, it's 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 good, but I always feel when I jump on a polonia board. It feels like there's like 0.1 of a second delay mm. in the spring and projection out of the bottom turn. Mm. You know, so I'll be racing down the line, I'll drive into a turn, I'll see a bit of lip, I go, right, I want to hit it. And I just don't quite get there to the spot I want to get to. Yeah. Yeah, even though it's an identical board to my balsa construction, yeah. you know, as far as the shape is identical, I've just replaced balsa with polonia. Mm. Balsa just has that little bit more liveliness and twang. Yeah. And instant response. I don't know if it's the grain. I, I look, I, I can't tell you why. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, Bert Berger from Sonova Surfboards, you're going to be at the boardroom show May 2nd and 3rd. We're excited uh, to have you come out to Del Mar and be a part uh, of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when is that again? Next year, May? May. Yeah, May. this year. Okay. This year. Oh, yeah, that's Just right. four months away, brother. Yeah. I bet there's still a lot of people out there putting uh, 2019 on their checks. You're looking at one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Bert, thanks so much for being a part of the podcast. And, um, yeah, cool. We, we appreciate it. All right. No worries, Scott. Thanks for having me, man. And uh, goodbye, everybody.
Job done. 